Monday, August 23rd, 1943. When the clock strikes half past eight, Margaret and Mother are nervous. Shh, Father, be quiet. Otto, shh, Pim, it's 8.30. Come here. You can't run the water anymore. Walk softly. A sample of what's said to Father in the bathroom. At the stroke of half past eight, he has to be in the living room. No running water, no flushing toilet, no walking around, no noise whatsoever. As long as the office staff hasn't arrived, sounds travel more easily to the warehouse. The door opens upstairs at 8.20, and it is followed by three gentle taps on the floor and hot syrup. I clamber up the stairs to get my doggy dish. Back downstairs, everything has to be done quickly, quickly. I comb my hair, put away the potty, shove the bed back in place, quiet. The clock is striking 8.30. Mrs. Van D changes shoes and shovels through the room in her slippers. Mr. Van D too, the veritable Charlie Chaplin, all is quiet. The ideal family scene has now reached its high point. I want to read or study, and Margaret does too. Father and mother ditto. Father is sitting on the edge of the sagging, squeaky bed, which doesn't even have a decent mattress. Two bolsters can be piled on top of each other. I don't need these, he thinks. I can manage without them. Once he starts reading, he doesn't look up. He laughs now and then and tries to get mother to read a story. I don't have the time right now. He looks disappointed, but then continues to read. A little while later, when he comes across another good passage, he tries again. You have to read this, mother. Mother sits on a folding bed, either reading, sewing, knitting, or studying, whichever is next on her list. An idea suddenly occurs to her, and she quickly says, so as not to forget. And remember to Margaret, jot this down. After a while, it's quiet again. Margaret slams her book shut. Father knits his forehead, his eyebrows forming a funny curve, and his wrinkle of concentration reappearing at the back of his head, and he buries himself in his book again. Mother starts chatting with Margaret, and I get curious and listen too. Pim is drawn into the conversation. Nine o'clock, breakfast. Friday, September 10th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, every time I write to you, something special has happened, usually unpleasant rather than pleasant. This time, however, something wonderful is going on. On Wednesday, September 8th, we were listening to the 7 o'clock news when we heard an announcement. Here is some of the best news of the war so far. Italy has capitulated. Italy has unconditionally surrendered. The Dutch broadcast from England began at 8.15 with the news. Listens, an hour and 15 minutes ago, just as I finished writing my daily report, we received the wonderful news of Italy's capitulation. I tell you, I never tossed my notes into the waste paper basket with more delight than I did today. God save the king. The American national anthem and the Russians international were played. As always, the Dutch program was uplifting without being too optimistic. The British have landed in Naples. Northern Italy is occupied by the Germans. The truce was signed on Friday, September 3rd the day the British landed in Italy. The Germans are ranting and raving in all the newspapers at the treachery of Badoglio and the Italian king. Still, there's bad news as well. It's about Mr. Kling. As you know, we all like him very much. He's unfailingly cheerful and amazingly brave, despite the fact that he's always sick and in pain.
pain and can't eat much or do a lot of walking. When Mr. Clayman enters the room, the sun begins to shine. Mother said recently, and she's absolutely right. Now it seems he has to go to the hospital for a very difficult operation on his stomach, and will have to stay there for at least four weeks. You should have seen him when he told us goodbye. He acted so normally, as though he were just off to do an errand. Yours, Anne. Thursday, September sixteenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, relationships here in the annex are getting worse all the time. We don't dare open our mouths at meal time because no matter what we say, someone is bound to resent it or take it the wrong way. Mister Foskershaw occasionally comes to visit us. Unfortunately, he's not doing very well. He isn't making it any easier for his family because his attitude seems to be, "What do I care? I'm going to die anyway." When I think how touchy everyone is here, I can just imagine what it must be like at the Foskershaws. I've been taking Valerian every day to fight the anxiety and depression, but it doesn't stop me from being even more miserable the next day. A good hearty laugh would help better than ten Valerian drops. But we've almost forgotten how to laugh. Sometimes I'm afraid my face is going to sag with all this sorrow, and that my mouth is going to permanently droop at the corners. The others aren't doing any better. Everyone here is dreading the great terror known as winter. Another fact that doesn't exactly brighten our days is that Mr. Van Marion, the man who works in the warehouse, is getting suspicious about the annex. A person with any brains must have noticed by now that Meeb sometimes says she's going to the lab, Bab to the fire room, and Mr. Clayman to the opaque supplies. While Mr. Kugler claims the annex doesn't belong to this building at all. But to the one next door, we won't care what Mr. Van Maren thought of the situation, except that he's known to be unreliable and to possess a high degree of curiosity. He's not one who can be cut off with a flimsy excuse. One day, Mr. Kugler wanted to be extra cautious, so at twenty past twelve, he put on his coat and went to the drugstore around the corner. Less than five minutes later, he was back, and he sneaked up the stairs like a thief to visit us. At one fifteen, he started to leave, but Bab met him on the landing and warned him that Van Maren was in the office. Mister Kugler did an about face and stayed with us until one thirty. Then he took off his shoes and went in his stocking feet to the front attic and down the other stairway, taking one step at a time to avoid creaks. It took him fifteen minutes to negotiate the stairs, but he wound up safely in the office after having entered from the outside. In the meantime, Bab had gotten rid of Van Maren and come to get Mister Kugler from the annex, but he'd already left and at the moment was still tiptoeing down the stairs. What must the passers-by have thought when they saw the manager putting on his shoes outside? Hey, you there in the socks? Yours, Anne. Wednesday, September twenty-nine, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, it's Missus Van Dan's birthday. Other than one ration stamp each for cheese, meat, and bread. All she received from us was a jar of jam. Her husband do so, and the office staff gave her nothing but flowers and also food. Such other times we live in. Bab had a nervous fit last week because she had so many errands to do. Ten times a day, people were sending her out for something. Each time, insisting she go right away or go again, or that she's done it all wrong. And when you think that she has her regular office work to do, that Mr. Clayman is sick. That Meep is hung with a cold, and that Bab herself has a sprained ankle, boyfriend troubles, and a grouchy father. It's no wonder she's at the end of her tether.
We comforted her and told her that if she put her foot down once or twice and say she didn't have the time, the shopping list would shrink of their own accord. Saturday there was a big drama, the likes of which have never been seen here before. It started with a discussion of Van Maren and ended in a general argument and tears. Dusso complained to mother that he was being treated like a leper, that no one was friendly to him, and that after all he hadn't done anything to deserve it. This was followed by a lot of sweet talk, which luckily mother didn't fall for this time. She told him we were disappointed in him and that on more than one occasion he'd been a source of great annoyance. Dusso promised her a moon, but as usual we haven't seen so much as a bean. There's trouble brewing with the Van Dams, I can tell. Father's furious because they're cheating us. They've been holding back meat and other things. Oh, what kind of bombshell is about to burst now? If only I weren't so involved in all these skirmishes. If only I could leave here. They're driving me crazy. Yours, Anne. Sunday, October seventeenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, Mister Clayman is back. Thank goodness. He looks a bit pale, and yet he cheerfully set off to sell some clothes for Mister Van Dam. The disagreeable fact is that Mr. Van Dan has run out of money. He lost his last hundred guilders in the warehouse, which is still creating trouble for us. The men are wondering how a hundred guilders could wind up in the warehouse on a Monday morning. Suspicion abounds. Meanwhile, the hundred guilders have been stolen. Who's the thief? But I was talking about the money shortage. Mrs. Van D has scats of dresses, coats, and shoes, none of which she feels she can do without. Mr. Van D's suit is difficult to sell, and Peter's spike was put on the block, but it's back again, since nobody wanted it. But the story doesn't end there. You see, Mrs. Van D is going to have to part with her fur coat. In her opinion, the firm should pay for our upkeep, but that's ridiculous. It just had a flaming row about it, and have entered the oh my sweet putty and darling curly stage of reconciliation. My mind boggles at the profanity this honourable house has had to endure in the past month. Father walks around with his lips pressed together, and whenever he hears his name, he looks up in alarm, as if he's afraid he'll be called upon to resolve another delicate problem. Mother so wrought up her cheeks are blotched with red. Margaret complains of headaches, do so constantly. Mrs. Mandy frets and fumes all day long, and I've gone completely round the bend. Tell you the truth, I sometimes forget who we're at odds with and who we're not. The only way to take my mind off it is to study, and I've been doing a lot of that lately. Yours, Anne. Friday, October twenty-ninth, nineteen forty-three. My dearest Kitty, Mister Clayman is out again. His stomach won't give him a moment's peace. He doesn't even know whether it stopped bleeding. He came to tell us he wasn't feeling well and was going home, and for the first time he seemed really down. Mr. and Mrs. Mandy have had more ragging battles. The reason is simple: they're broke. They wanted to sell an overcoat and a suit of Mr. Mandy's, but were unable to find any buyers. His prices were way too high. Some time ago, Mr. Clayman was talking about a ferrier he knows. This gave Mr. Mandy the idea of selling his wife's furcoat. It's made of rabbit skin, and she's had it for seventeen years. Mrs. Mandy got three hundred and twenty-five guilders for it—an enormous amount. She wanted to keep the money herself to buy new clothes after the war, and it took some doing before Mr. Van D could make her understand that it was desperately needed to cover household expenses. You can't imagine the screaming, shouting, stamping of feet, and swearing that went on. It was terrifying. 
My family stood holding its breath at the bottom of the stairs in case it might be necessary to drag them apart. All the bickering, tears, and nervous tension have become such a stress and strain that I fall into my bed at night, crying and thanking my lucky stars that I have half an hour to myself. I'm doing fine, except I've got no appetite. I keep hearing, "Goodness, you look awful." I must admit they're doing their best to keep me in condition. They're plying me with dextrose, cod liver oil, brewer's yeast, and calcium. My nerves often get the better of me, especially on Sundays. That's when I really feel miserable. The atmosphere is stifling, sluggish, leaden. Outside, you don't hear a single bird, and a deathly, oppressive silence hangs over the house and clings to me as if it were going to drag me into the deepest regions of the underworld. At times like these, father, mother, and Margaret don't matter to me in the least. I wander from room to room, climb up and down the stairs, and feel like a songbird whose wings have been ripped off and who keeps hurling itself against the bars of its dark cage. Let me out, where there's fresh air and laughter. A voice within me cries. I don't even bother to reply any more, but lie down on the divan. Sleep makes the silence and the terrible fear go by more quickly. Helps pass the time, since it's impossible to kill it. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, November third, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, to take our minds off matters as well as to develop them, Father ordered a catalogue from a correspondence school. Margaret pored through the thick brochure three times without finding anything to her liking and within her budget. Father was easier to satisfy and decided to write and ask for a trial lesson in elementary Latin. No sooner said than done. The lesson arrived. Margaret set to work enthusiastically and decided to take the course despite the expense. It's much too hard for me, though I'd really like to learn Latin. To give me a new project as well, Father asked Mr. Clayman for a children's Bible so I could finally learn something about the New Testament. Are you planning to give Anne a Bible for Hanukkah? Margaret asked, somewhat perturbed. Yes. Well, maybe Saint Nicholas Day would be a better occasion. Father replied. Jesus and Hanukkah don't exactly go together. Since the vacuum cleaner's broken, I have to take an old brush to the rub every night. The windows closed, the lights on, the stove's burning, and there I am brushing away at the rug. That's sure to be a problem. I thought to myself the first time. They're bound to be complaints. I was right. Mother got a headache from the thick clouds of dust whirling around the room. Margaret's new Latin dictionary was caked with dirt. And Pim grumbled that the floor didn't look any different anyway. Small thanks for my pains. We've decided that from now on the stove is going to be lit at seven thirty on Sunday mornings instead of five thirty. I think it's risky. What will the neighbors think of our smoking chimney? It's the same with the curtains. Ever since we first went into hiding, they've been tacked firmly to the windows. Sometimes one of the ladies or gentlemen can't resist to urge to peek outside. The result: a storm of reproaches. The response: Oh, nobody will notice. That's how every act of carelessness begins and ends. No one will notice. No one will hear. No one will pay the least bit of attention. Easy to say, but is it true? At the moment, the tempestuous quarrels have subsided. Only Dusso and the Van Dans are still at loggerheads. When Dusso is talking about Mrs. Van D, he invariably calls her that old bat or that stupid hag. And conversely, Mrs. Fendi refers to our ever-so-learned gentleman as an old maid or a touchy neurotic spinster, etc. The pot calling the kettle black. Yours, Anne. Monday evening, November eighth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, 
If you were to read all my letters in one sitting, you'd be struck by the fact that they were written in a variety of moods. It annoys me to be so dependent on the moods here in the acts, but I'm not the only one. We are all subject to them. If I'm engrossed in a book, I have to rearrange my thoughts before I can mingle with other people, because otherwise they might think I was strange. As you can see, I'm currently in the middle of a depression. I couldn't really tell you what set it off, but I think it stems from my cowardice, which confronts me at every turn. This evening, when Bab was still here, the doorbell rang loud and loud. I instantly turned white. My stomach churned and my heart beat wildly, and all because I was afraid. At night in bed, I see myself alone in a dungeon without father and mother, or I'm roaming the streets, or the annex is on fire, or they come in the middle of the night to take us away, and I crawl under my bed in desperation. I see everything as if it were actually taking place, and to think it might all happen soon. Meep often says she envies us because we have such peace and quiet here. That may be true, but she's obviously not thinking about our fear. I simply can't imagine the world will ever be normal again for us. I do talk about after the war, but it's as if I were talking about a castle in the air, something that can never come true. I see the eight of us in the annex as if we were a patch of blue sky surrounded by menacing black clouds. The perfectly round spot on which we're standing is still safe, but the clouds are moving in on us, and the ring between us and the approaching danger is being pulled tighter and tighter. We are surrounded by darkness and danger, and in our desperate search for a way out, we keep bumping into each other. We look at the fighting down below and the peace and beauty up above. In the meantime, we've been cut off by the dark mass of clouds, so that we can go neither up nor down. It looms before us like an impenetrable wall, trying to crush us, but not yet able to. I can only cry out and implore: "Oh, ring, ring, open wide and let us out!" Yours, Anne. Thursday, November eleventh, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, I have a good title for this chapter: "Ode to My Fountain Pen," in memoriam. My fountain pen was always one of my most prized possessions. I valued it highly, especially because it had a thick nib, and I can only write neatly with thick nibs. It has led a long and interesting fountain pen life, which I will summarize below. When I was nine, my fountain pen arrived as a sample of no commercial value, all the way from Aachen, where my grandmother used to live. I lay in bed with the flu, while the February winds howled around the apartment house. This splendid fountain pen came in a red leather case, and I showed it to my girlfriends the first chance I got. Me and Frank, the proud owner of a fountain pen. When I was ten, I was allowed to take the pen to school, and to my surprise, the teacher even let me write with it. When I was eleven, however, my treasure had to be tucked away again because my sixth-grade teacher allowed us to use only school pens and inkpots. When I was twelve, I started at the Jewish Lyceum, and my fountain pen was given a new case in honor of the occasion. Not only did it have room for a pencil, it also had a zipper, which was much more impressive. When I was thirteen, the fountain pen went with me to the annex, and together we raced through countless diaries and compositions. I've turned fourteen, and my fountain pen was enjoying the last year of its life with me. When it was just after five on Friday afternoon, I came out of my room and was about to sit down at the table to write when I was roughly pushed to one side to make room for Margaret and father, who wanted to practice the Latin. The fountain pen remained unused on the table, while its owner, sighing, was forced to make do with a very tiny corner of the table. 
where she began rubbing beans. That's how we remove mold from the beans and restore them to their original state. At a quarter to six, I swept the floor, dumped the dirt into a newspaper, along with the rotten beans, and tossed it into the stove. A giant flame shot up, and I thought it was wonderful that the stove, which had been gasping its last breath, had made such a miraculous recovery. All was quiet again. The Latin students had left, and I sat down at the table to pick up where I'd left off. But no matter where I looked, my fountain pen was nowhere in sight. I took another look. Margaret looked. Mother looked. Father looked. Dusso looked, but it had vanished. Maybe it fell in the stove along with the beans. Margaret suggested. No, it couldn't have. I replied. But that evening, when my fountain pen still hadn't turned up, we all assumed it had been burned, especially because celluloid is highly inflammable. Our darkest fears were confirmed the next day when Father went to empty the stove and discovered the clip used to fasten it to a pocket among the ashes. Not a trace of the gold nib was left. It must have melted into stone, Father conjectured. I'm left with one consolation, small though it may be. My fountain pen was cremated, just as I would like to be some day. Yours, Anne. Capitulation, capitulation. Now, the action of ceasing to resist an opponent on demand. Valerian, Valerian. Now, a Eurasian plant which typically bears clusters of small pink or white flowers. Old, old. Now, a lyric poem, typically one in the form of an address to a particular subject, written in varied or irregular meter. 